Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Ahead of July the 4th, American Independence Day, and Donald Trump's visit to Britain on July the 13th, let's talk about US politics and its influence and impact on the UK. I'm delighted to be joined for this special episode by Ben Rhodes, whose new book, The World As It Is, charts a decade at Barack Obama's side, from the campaign in Chicago to flying with him to California on the day he left the White House for the final time. Officially, Ben's title was Deputy National Security Advisor, but for many he came to be the most significant figure deciding US foreign policy behind only the president himself. US commentators talk about a mind meld between the two men. He was at the table for the Iran nuclear deal, the opening of relations with Cuba, the night US Navy SEALs killed Osama bin Laden, and he was there when David Cameron asked Barack Obama for his help to stop Brexit. More than just a speechwriter, he sought to recast the American story, but it was a story that had an unhappy ending for Team Obama with the election of Donald Trump. Ben, welcome. We'll come to all of that. Yes. Uh, but first of all, let's start at the beginning. How did you, as and you talk in the book about being an aspiring novelist. Yes. Yeah. How does an aspiring novelist end up working for the guy who ended up being the future president of the United States? Yeah, well, it wasn't the plan, um, but actually what happened is I was getting a... a advanced degree in fiction writing and working actually on local politics in New York uh, on September 11th, 2001. And that was election day in New York. I was actually at a polling site for a city council candidate I was working for. And I saw the second plane hit the World Trade Center. I saw the first tower fall. Uh, And I knew at that moment that whatever I was going to do going forward had to be a part of how the world responded to this. I didn't know exactly what. Um, I actually went to an army recruiter that didn't know what to make of someone like me. <laughs> you know, there's not a lot of jobs for, for creative writing graduate students in the army. Um, so he didn't make a very good sell. Otherwise, I might have uh, signed up. But uh, I moved down to Washington, ultimately became a speechwriter for uh, a guy who ended up being the co-chair of the 9-11 commission that we had uh, in the U.S. to look at those attacks. But ultimately, I began to feel like there was only so much of a difference I could make from the outside that it, I needed to get involved in politics if I really wanted to, to be a part of making uh, things change. Uh, and that led me to Barack Obama. So you were 28 when you went to work for him? 29. 29. Um, yeah. And, I, you know, I uh, he he was different. I mean, he was speaking differently. Not only did he look different, he was he was connecting with younger people. He was challenging kind of an establishment that had failed um, I believed in the Iraq war. And, um, you know, I joined him like a lot of young people it was kind of a pickup team um, as a speechwriter when I was 29. And uh, one of the things I was just wanted to sort of pick over with you is we've, we've talked on this podcast before about what it's like to work in 
Downing Street or yeah. working parliament, that sort of thing. Just explain what it's like on that first day when you go into the White House. Yeah, so you know, we had this campaign that just took off and it was kind of seized this moment and this huge victory. Um, but then you walk into the West Wing and first of all, we were in a financial crisis. Yeah. So um, the stakes got higher in between the election and uh, the inauguration, the th- that three-month period. And you walk in and it's a tiny space. I mean, if, if any of your you know listeners watched the West Wing uh, television show, it's much smaller than that. It's basically three floors with, you know, a few offices on each floor. Um, and you're immediately struck by just how small it is and how this is a place where the most consequential decisions possible are made. And you're kind of looking around thinking, is there somebody else here who's going to help us figure <laughs> this out? Um, and, you know, it's the Oval Office and uh, the cabinet room where the president has most of his uh, key meetings. Uh, and then this this set of offices and mine was, you know, underneath the Oval Office. So the ceiling was dropped down, no windows. It wasn't a glamorous workspace. I've seen some of the pictures and it doesn't yeah. look like no, it's, it, it, you'd expect. Yeah, the space wasn't great. The real estate was. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, And then, you know, you can wander around the complex. It's, I've been in Downing Street and it's a bit like that in the sense that it's a place that you know from seeing it so much on the news. And, and yet, you know, I remember that first day I'm walking around the residence of the White House, the, the actual mansion that people are familiar with. I kept expecting to be stopped. You know, um, <laughs> there's all these security guards and no, I have a pass. You know, you can wave through. So you immediately you know, feel that weight of responsibility, though. And one of the things about uh, Downing Street and the way that the, the sort of the, the building has an impact on the way that it's run is sort of yeah. proximity to yes. the prime minister. Is, this, is that the same true in the White House proximity uh, to the Oval Office? Absolutely. I mean, I was directly underneath the Oval Office. Um, it took me less than a minute to get there. And yes, I mean, all the decisions ultimately run for good or bad, run through the Oval Office. Um, and so you're not sitting on top of a huge bureaucracy like the State Department or the Pentagon in the United States. Um, but what you have is uh, the decision making authority that runs through the president. And that is literally it can be maybe just you and him or a yeah. handful of people in a room. He makes a decision and then it happens because ultimately it's the guy at the top who's made it. Yeah. And, you know, the White House st- staff is relatively small. I mean, every day I would begin my day when, with what we call the presidential daily briefing in the United States, which is the president reviews the key intelligence around the world. And he kind of in that meeting almost sets a direction about how do we respond to world events. Um, and then there's a process of how you bring the rest of the government <laughs> into that decision making process. But but uh, yes, I mean, you as a speechwriter too, you know, Obama cared a lot about his speeches. And I got to spend a lot of time with him early on, in part because he really wanted to communicate a different direction. And and so you're spending these hours alone with the president of the United States. It, that's a unique, precious asset that I was lucky enough to to, to, to be in a position to, to, to access. And given that his speeches were such a big part of yeah. who he is and his presidency in a way that you wouldn't necessarily say that speech making or writing was the strength of the current incumbent, where does sort of he end and you begin? And at what point do... Are you shaping him and he shaping you? It's, that relationship between sort of principle and speech, speech yeah, writer. Yeah, it's you know it's very much you know him shaping me in the sense that my job is to help him say what he wants to say. Um, 
and you get yourself into trouble as a speechwriter when you think you know you're you're the one uh, doing it the other way around. And he would have very clear ideas of what he wanted to say. I mean, I described some of the process behind the speech writing. You know, I'd go up to the Oval Office, say, for you know a speech like he gave in Cairo to the Muslim world. And, you know, for an hour, he would kind of pace in a circle and dictate literally, you know, here are the points I want to say. Here's the outline of, of, of the, the speech I want to give. Uh, my job would then become... You know, helping him do that while making sure that we were mindful of, you know, the different policies that we had to work into the speech, um, that the right advisors saw it. But ultimately, because he had a very sure sense of, of himself and, and what he wanted to communicate, uh, it would end up back in his hands. And the two of us would work it out till the very end uh, before he gave the speech. One of the things that, which I always think striking about British politics is to, even the prime minister gives an awful lot of speeches. Yeah. And some of them are big moments and some of them aren't. You know, somebody's still yeah. got to sit and write a speech, but it's, you know, it's to a, a collection of business people or whatever. It's, you know, there yeah. are big moments and the, the ones that aren't. Is it always a big moment when the US president speaks? Or, it, or are there some sort of more run-of-the-mill speeches? You have to remind yourself that it's always a big moment to yeah. the audience. Absolutely. And in a given day, he could give a major address, a speech to a constituency group. But we'd go abroad... And a speech that he'd given a foreign country that would barely register in the United States would be an enormous event mm. in that country. Um, and I, I also, the stakes of a U.S. president speaking at all. I mean, I, I tell a story in the book about the speech he gave in Berlin during the campaign to 250,000 people. Uh, and I'm sitting there sweating over every line a couple hours before the speech. And we had this German word in the speech that meant community of fate, which was this very Obama idea. We're all in this together. And so we said the German word, like, ich bin ein Berliner, we're going to have our moment. And I look at the word and I check with a German translator um, that both the meaning and anything I should know about this. And he said, oh, I'm so glad you asked. That is the theme of one of Hitler's first speeches to the Reichstag. <laughs> you know? And so I'm sitting there thinking like, well, I almost sent this would-be president out to echo Hitler in the heart of Berlin. Uh, I better go tell him, you know. And so I went up to tell Obama. He's sitting there. He's smoking in those days. And uh, he kind of puts out his hand like, give me a minute here. I got to process this. And then he kind of devolves into laughter. So it ended up being kind of a, a light moment. But you, you, you're aware that even a throwaway speech you never uh, one line that is wrong or one thing that I mean, <laughs> like everything in the age of Trump, this has changed a bit. But your words are going to be scrutinized by everyone around the world, unlike any other office holder in the world. And and, you know, that that does raise the stakes, even for the speeches that seem less consequential. And which of the speeches which stand out, given that you wrote so many, probably millions of words over that yeah, time? Yeah. Which are the ones that stand out for you? Is either ones it will stand the test of time or you were just most pleased with or yeah there were a few different ones that stand out that I mean the speech he gave um, when he won the Nobel Peace Prize um, obviously probably prematurely but um, that's actually where the title comes from you know he he really opened up his own worldview uh, I remember I gave him a draft in the morning we were supposed to take off for Oslo he calls me up to his office and he had rewritten the whole thing by hand. And we basically stayed up that whole night um, on the flight over working on it. Um, but he really let, let people in. You know, what he wrestled with there is not that he got the award prematurely, but that he got the award even though he was a commander in chief of a country at war. And he talked about being somebody whose heroes were nonviolent people like King and Gandhi and Mandela. Um, and yet he couldn't realize that, you know, that 
that worldview while also being president of the United States. And he actually talked about, you know, you have to see the world as it is in order to pursue the world as it ought to be, the world embodied by people like King. Um, and so that one always stood out to me. Another one that um, was more personal to me was when he went to Havana, first U.S. president to go to Cuba, certainly since the Cuban Revolution, where everything he said was it was weird to have that feeling that everything he says is historic, you know, um, just because he's here. And he said, you know, we need to end the Cold War, bury the Cold War in the Americas. And um, and he's addressing this history of the missile crisis and, and the, the Castro brothers. And, and that one felt satisfying because it wasn't just speech. It was it was an actual change in U.S. policy that was going along with it. I wanted to ask you about when he sang Amazing Grace. Yes. Yeah. How did that? come about because yeah. it, it felt almost spontaneous yeah and that that i would actually say that that was the most powerful oration of his presidency yeah. uh will always stand out to me so you had this horrible shooting at a black church in charleston south carolina where a young white supremacist goes in and asks to join a bible study group and then kills all the african-americans it, it kind of lifted up two of the worst forces in america racism and gun violence Obama originally said to us that he didn't even want to speak. Um, he was out of words. Uh, he's spoken at too many funerals. But uh, ultimately, you know, we, you know, the speechwriters produce a draft, and the lead speechwriter on it um, said, you know, to me, he's one of my closest friends. Obama again rewrote the whole speech by hand, which didn't. Ha- I know I've said that twice now. It didn't happen very much. You know, only five or six times while I worked for him. And, and he'd made it a much more personal speech about race, and he'd framed it around the concept of grace. Um, but he wasn't planning to sing at that point. Um, but he knew that the speech was, was speaking in a more raw and honest way about topics that he often shied away from, um, principally racism. And he mentioned just when he, the helicopter took off, you know, I might, I might sing if the spirit moves me. And we didn't take it that seriously, and I didn't travel with him. So I described staying in my office and I'm watching him give this speech. And as he's giving it, I could tell there was something different. And often when he would get in black churches, you know, he would kind of start to feed off the crowd and and his style would change. And he's giving the speech and I can tell he's talking very viscerally about American history and the history of American racism. And I could feel that he was going to a different place. And then he gets to a moment in the speech and he kind of pauses. And I'm watching this on television. I'm this is a guy I, you know, spent thousands of hours with, and I could tell he was thinking. <laughs> and a tiny little thing in his face changed, actually a little smile. Um, and I'm like, oh, my God, he's going to sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And all of a sudden, this comes out. And it was like this catharsis. You know, everybody in the church, like, leaps to their feet. And, you know, there's the sadness at the lives lost, but there's this kind of sense of coming together. You know, if you work for a politician, it's rare that you get a moment when you just see the very best expression of that politician taking place before your eyes. And everything that like i admired about barack obama his his sense of history his sense that we can overcome history uh his sense of compassion it all kind of came out in that moment and i described sitting in my desk just sobbing and i'm not a crier um as i as i watched that 
as a result, do you think that the the failure to do anything about gun control during his presidency is that one of the things he would regret most? Oh, because for, for Brits looking over, it is one of the most baffling things. There's no question uh, that it's it's um, his biggest disappointment. But one of the problems in American politics, and maybe it's a strength of our system too, is that you can't you can only do so much without Congress and. After the Newtown shooting where all those kindergartners were killed, um, he made gun violence the number one priority at the beginning of his second term, and he just could not get anything through Congress. Um, the politics in the Republican Party were not going to permit even the most you know, basic laws like background checks for people buying guns. We couldn't get that passed. And you know, you can't you can't really address the issue without legislation. Um, and so he certainly regrets more than anything that he couldn't do anything on the issue. In some ways, it was out of our hands, though. Let's move on and talk about some of the other, because there are so many standout yeah. moments in the book. You're, one of the most gripping bits, I think, is when you're describing uh, the night of the raid, which yeah. led to the killing of Osama bin Laden. It was particularly... I suppose weird is the right word, in that it started while he was at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. So he's yeah. given this very funny speech about yeah. about Donald Trump and the Bertha claims, yeah. while knowing that the raid is already underway. But obviously yeah. no one else in the room does, but you were yeah. one of the few people who did know. Yeah. Yeah, it, you know, I had been in meetings for the previous couple of weeks about whether or not to launch this raid to get bin Laden. And, you know, we didn't know that he was there for certain. I mean, that was the main issue. I mean, also the issue of going deep inside of Pakistan. But ultimately, on a Friday, he decides to, to go ahead with the raid, and the raid's going to go off Sunday morning. Um, Saturday night is the White House Correspondents' Center, which is this annual gathering of all the Washington media and basically White House staff and politicians and the president all go. None of us wanted to go, but we had to keep the secret. And if suddenly the president didn't show up and all the national security people didn't show up, it would have been a massive tip-off that something was happening. So we had to kind of go and go through the motions of this dinner. And there was an absurdity to it because I'm in the room with all these people. My brother is actually the president of CBS News, one of the biggest uh, television networks in the country. He's staying with me. I know this huge secret that I know he would like to know. <laughs> I can't tell him. So I, I describe how strange it was to carry around with you this secret that you just can't let people know. Obama gets up. Usually there's some comic element to it. He had just been through this absurdity of Trump raising the birther issue to the point that Obama had to release his birth certificate. So he's making this speech that I think holds up pretty well, um, kind of taking Trump apart. Donald Trump is here tonight. All kidding aside, obviously we all know about your credentials and breadth of experience. Um, for example, uh, no, seriously, just recently in an episode of Celebrity Apprentice at the Steakhouse, the men's cooking team uh, did not impress the judges from Omaha Steaks. And there was a lot of blame to go around, but you, Mr. Trump, recognized that the real problem was a lack of leadership. And so ultimately, you didn't blame Little John or Meatloaf. <laughs> you fired Gary Busey. <laughs> and these are the kind of decisions that would keep me up at night. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm sitting there thinking about this raid that's going to happen in Pakistan, you know. Um, but Obama, you know, goes through the motions. Um, 
we go back, go home, and uh, I get, I'm, when I got out the next morning to go in to, to deal with this, I remember my brother's there, and I'm like, what do I tell him about where I'm going? Because, uh, you know, it's a Sunday I wouldn't normally work. I was just like, uh, I got to go do something. <laughs> just disappeared for the day. <laughs> um, but then we went in, and, and then there was this um, tremendous uncertainty because, you know, they're flying for a long period of time on these helicopters into Pakistan. Pretty quickly after, you know, the first helicopter almost crashed. It clipped the top of a wall. And so you're thinking, oh, God, everything's going wrong. But the pilot manages to land. And within minutes, we get th- this report, you know, bin Laden is there and then that he's killed. And it's very rare in government that everything goes right. And I remember just walking outside the White House. It was like a moment, you know, we've all had them in our lives where you're like, I would like time to stop <laughs> for a period of time. Uh, you know, I know that as soon as I go back inside, everything will start up again and we'll have to write a speech and all this stuff. But I remember just walking outside and like, I know something that only like 50 people in the world know. And it's a good thing that has happened, uh, even though it's an act of violence. And, and I just wanted to, to, to be alone in that moment for a period of time. It was a sort of a full stop on such a long period of American yeah. political, you know, yeah. politics have been dominated by the question yeah. of pre, both pre and post 9-11 and the question of where he yeah. was and, and yeah. what what could be done about him. And the other thing is that I mean, not only I have my own story on 9-11, but, you know, one of the hardest things for Americans and, and, and I think for Brits, given that you've been with us in this, you know, there weren't going to be victories in Afghanistan and Iraq that were like World War II. There's not going to be an end to these wars that is simple in a surrender ceremony. The closest thing we were going to get to that was killing bin Laden. You know, the closest thing we were going to get to some closure and sense that we uh, had dealt with this um, was that operation. Okay, so in a moment, we'll move on and talk about what Barack Obama thought about David Cameron, Boris Johnson, Jeremy Corbyn, Theresa May, and of course, uh, Brexit. We'll be back after this. 
we've had Sir Christopher Mayer, the former ambassador to Washington on the podcast before, he's talked about how Brits are obsessed with it. Americans just get annoyed by it, but know they've got to do it, otherwise Brits lose their mind mm-hmm. over the fact that somebody's not mentioned it. What's your, during your time in the in the White House, what is the significance of the special oh. relationship? So I actually, and I'm not just saying this because I'm here, I actually found that it was a special relationship, and here's why. You know, most meetings that you have with foreign governments are either, you know, you're negotiating something, you're, you're trying to bridge a difference, even when you're meeting with you know Germans and French, you know you you agree about most things, but you know there's some area of, uh, that you're seeking to work over. When 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 we would meet with British governments, by the way, including from different parties, yeah. we had Gordon Brown and then David Cameron. You know you're 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 forming a common strategy. <laughs> you know, like you start from the presumption. It doesn't mean we agree on every single thing, but you start from the presumption. It's the only relationship where you really sit down and you know. The outcomes that you're seeking to achieve around the world are basically the same outcomes. You know, you have the same values, basically the same interests. Um, and so, what what was special is having a relationship like that in the world where it's a it's a it's a team trying to solve a problem together, um, and you know, it's working through strategy. And um, that that was truly unique. And again, like the the French and German alliances are incredibly important. Um, but there's not the same depth of common history and having a, a desire for the same outcome. So that's what that's the value in it. I think you know certainly for the United States is just having that type of partner that is globally focused, that does share your worldview, shares your your values, shares your language. It, it, that makes it a unique relationship in a way that you don't have with any other country. Sometimes, particularly, I think the Gordon Brown relationship with President Obama was sometimes viewed as not being as equals. There was a famous story of them meeting in a kitchen and at the UN and that sort of thing. Is that a fair Well, this is where the special relationship gets tricky in the sense that this is where I think there is more British sensitivity. A couple of small things like like that meeting at the UN, we were just crunched and had to work it in and I think probably didn't think through, is this going to look like it's a downgraded special relationship? The most important one that ended up dogging us for eight years was, you know, when Obama moved into the Oval Office and, you know, Bush had a bust of Lincoln and a bust of Churchill, right? And Obama wanted to put in a bust of Martin Luther King, which, you know, obvious for obvious reasons as the first African-American president. And so this Churchill bust was, was taken out of the Oval Office. Now, as he would point out, there was a Churchill bust in his residence, but it became this. Oh, Obama is sending some message to us, you know, that that he's downgrading the special relationship. So this was always the trick: was that um, sometimes, or I think he gave the Queen like an iPod or something with what he thought was her favorite music on it, but that was seen as not sufficiently yeah special, you know. So so where it would get tricky is is sometimes there was an overreading of gestures. That made it complicated. With Gordon Brown, I think they they got on well. I mean, they had a similar orientation. They had to work pretty closely on the global financial crisis around the G20 here, particularly in London. I do think there was a difficulty in the sense that Brown was had been around for a long time. Obama was kind of the new kid on the block. You know, Brown was obviously running for re-election, but you know, you could tell that 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 was winding down. I think they 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 met each other at at different stages in their political career. And in a weird way, Cameron, even though he was a different political orientation, he came in as the young guy. That gave him and Obama time and space to kind of build this relationship um, at similar points in their political 
careers. So let's um, sort of unpick their relationship a bit. What one of the probably I assume one of the low points was when Britain, the Houses of Parliament in the UK, voted against joining the yeah. military action against Assad. Uh, over the use of chemical weapons, and David Cameron had to make that difficult call. You know, he yeah. basically said Britain was going to be there with America, and then had to make the difficult call to the White House to say that yeah. he, he couldn't do it. How significant does that seem now, looking back? Yeah, I mean, it was really significant. I, I tell the story in the book of that week where you had the chemical weapons attack, and I had assumed that we were going to bomb Syria, um, and I, you know, had advocated for it, and. Um, Obama certainly left that impression when we had our first meetings. And a series of things happened that week that changed his mind. You know, even before that, Angela Merkel had told him that Germany couldn't be supportive, not just militarily, but even diplomatically. She believed that we had to wait and let the UN inspect what had happened. So the international support was basically limited to the UK and France. At home, the reason the British Parliament vote was was more important is that Republicans in Congress started demanding that he seek congressional authorization. Um, and they were saying it would be unconstitutional for you to act in Syria without this congressional authorization. They had no such points when Trump did, but I'll put that aside. Um, and Obama took that threat seriously because they had the majority. Um, he actually thought that they might try to impeach him. I mean, it, it's not that far-fetched given how extreme the opposition was to Obama. So when the British vote happened, and I don't want to suggest it was determinative, but the reason it was important was, was that there are two issues. Do we have international support and do we have domestic support? When the British vote happened, we knew a big chunk of the international support we had was gone. And also, though, it played into the debate at home, because if we'd acted without Congress, it might have looked like, well, you were afraid of what happened to Cameron happening to you. Ironically, that's basically what happened in that Obama decides to go to Congress and seek authorization. That vote never happened, but clearly that was getting away from us. We were not going to win that vote. And ultimately, he makes a deal with Putin to try to remove the chemical weapons diplomatically. So again, it wasn't the determining factor, but it played into two of the concerns he had. And I try to let people understand the complexity of the office of the presidency. You know, He's not just looking at whether I'd be justified in going into Syria. He's thinking, can this work? Um, it's hard enough given how complex the civil war is, if I don't have domestic political support or international support, it's that much harder. And I think he ultimately calculated that without some additional support, I can't sustain a military intervention. Obviously, the longer time goes on, it gets more complex, not less. And nobody seems to know what what to do about it any more than than back in 2013. Yeah. Trump did what everybody said Obama should have done. He bombed them after they used chemical weapons and nothing changed. In in a weird way, it kind of confirmed Obama's view that there was never some limited military strike that was going to change everything there. What it makes me wonder, and I, I, I discuss this, is before it went off the rails, you know, before it became such a complex, multifaceted civil war, did we miss some window, mm. diplomatically probably, to try to forestall some of that? You know, in 2011, 2012, when the crisis began in Syria, all these leaders were falling, and we might have assumed too uh, readily that Assad would be next. And so, you know, when we called for Assad to go diplomatically, which obviously we would want him to go um, for the sake of the Syrian people, but did that foreclose diplomacy uh, in a way that might have forestalled some of what happened? The UK vote obviously didn't harm the personal relationship between Cameron and Obama. 
No, I think we were sympathetic. We were dealing with the hangover of the Iraq War ourselves. Mm. You know, the American public was not supportive of another war in the Middle East. Congress didn't want to take that vote. The intelligence community didn't want to make the public case for it, as it described. So the notion that Cameron felt similarly, like after Tony Blair had followed Bush mm. into Iraq, he, he needed that support. That was understandable um, to us. So we didn't, we didn't hold that against Cameron. I mean, even to the point when, was it three years later, Obama comes over not long before his own time is up and basically joins the Remain campaign yeah. for the purposes of the EU referendum. So you talk in there about you and President Obama thought Brexit was going to be a terrible idea and a yeah. calamitous. You describe it as a crucial piece of the post-World War II order drifting off into the sea. Do you sort of still think that? Yeah, I mean... Let me just talk selfishly from yeah. American interests, right? Europe is some of the same things that, that Brits don't like about the European Union. It can be unwieldy. And that's precisely why, I mean, having a, uh, the UK in the EU was, is just for American interests incredibly important because uh, the Brits are the most activist, along with the French, in terms of foreign policy, national security issues, taking a tougher line against Russian aggression, uh, fighting terrorism trying to get the EU to be more activist in resolving its financial crisis. We were always aligned with Britain in those debates. Having the UK and their voice represented in the EU was incredibly important to the United States. I believe Britain's voice on global affairs is amplified if they're in the EU and and will be uh, less amplified um, outside of it. Um, So that, too, is, is in America's interest to have an activist global United Kingdom. And and also, frankly, it's just the the architecture that we had built together for 70 years kind of depended on these global institutions succeeding, you know, the European Union, the UN system, the international trading system, and NATO. There was there's a risk, and I think there still is in the sense of that order unraveling. And so for all those reasons, you know, we felt that, uh, again, for, for America's interest, it would be bad for Britain to lead the EU. Again, uh, we could also identify reasons that we felt like it could be bad for for Britain economically and and uh, in terms of you know its ability to operate with with within and with Europe. So again, it's important to note that this wasn't just because we we're friends with Cameron. Like we, you know, as the leaders of the United States, thought that this would be a bad thing for our country. So they say, for example, that uh, well, we'll just cut our own trade deals with the United States. So they're, they're voicing an opinion about what the United States is going to do. I figured you might want to hear from the President of the United States what I think the United States is going to do. Uh, and on that matter, for example, uh, I think it's fair to say that maybe some point down the line there might be a, a UK-US trade agreement, but it's not going to happen anytime soon because our focus is in negotiating with a big block, the European Union, to get a trade agreement done. And UK is going to be in the back of the queue. President Obama comes over and he gives that famous speech. Uh, he did a joint press conference yeah. where he used the phrase back of the queue. Yeah. In your book, you explain how that wasn't necessarily a form of words that he would have used himself. And it came up in a meeting with sitting yeah. around with David Cameron and his team yeah. working out what to what to say. Yeah. And I don't and I, I want to be clear, I don't say this to kind of pass the buck, but it, it's just <laughs> I think people always like to know how do these things come about. And essentially what happened is we, we land. First of all, we land here and Obama does an op-ed kind of making the remain case. And Boris Johnson wrote uh, a pretty over the top op-ed, you know, kind of slamming Obama. So we knew we were in 
in a rough and tumble environment here. And we meet with Cameron the next day, and this press conference is obviously going to be a centerpiece of the visit. What we were doing is we were going through what are the arguments for the Brexit campaign so that we can anticipate them and Obama can be prepared to to counter them, essentially, yeah. in this press conference. And one of the arguments uh, that was raised was that, well, the UK could just do a free trade agreement with the, the Americans. Obama was incredulous at this. He's like, that would never happen. You know, we're already doing free trade negotiations with the EU. We'd have to wait. We couldn't even start that until after the process of Brexit because we'd have to see what your relationship is with Europe before we could do a trade deal. So he he was going on about how, like, that would never happen. That's a dishonest argument, you know. And one of the people on the on the British side kind of laughed and said, yeah, we'd be at the back of the queue, you know. And Obama's like, that's exactly right, you know. Uh, and Cameron was like, well, it'd be great if you could make that point in the press conference. To be fair to Cameron, I don't even know that Cameron meant, you know, say back of the queue. <laughs> I think Cameron meant make that point at the yeah. press conference, you know. Obama heard it as, yeah, this back of the queue phrase is the way, you know. So then Ob- Obama uses that phrase. Again, substantively, it's actually true. And you don't even see Trump making a free trade agreement with the Brits at this point. There was already going to be a criticism that he was meddling. I think using kind of British English probably added to that um, perception. But uh, again, he was just uh, reflecting kind of the violent agreement that we had all had in that 10 Downing Street ca- uh, cabinet room about how that argument was not uh, was not going to bear out. In the run-up to the visit, and I think immediately after, both sides, Remain and Leave, yeah. thought this was a big moment for Remain. This yeah. was this this could be one of the sort of defining points of the campaign. In a way, it was, but more for the Leave campaign. Subsequently, people saw that this was a basically it backfired that it was seen as a guy who was coming to the end of his term coming over coming over and telling us yeah. what we should be doing yeah do you think did you anticipate that do you regret getting so heavily involved in what was essentially a domestic thing in a way that yeah. a US president wouldn't when you lose a campaign everything that happened on the losing campaign looks like a mistake yeah and when you win, everything seems ingenious. Um, and and so you know, I've lived, I've been on winning campaigns where you know we made a lot of mistakes that nobody paid any attention to after. So I I think that we were frankly saying we said to the camera people, you let us know what we can do to help here. Like I said, it was worth making the case on the merits based on American interests. Their analysis was pretty straightforward. Obama's very popular here, so therefore let's have him come. And I think Cameron also had a lot of other foreign leaders Mm. similarly weigh in. I can see why that could have backfired. But again, like if Remain had squeaked it out, everyone might have said, well, actually, it was good Obama came. But um, I think there was a bigger problem, as I will tell you my view from afar here. There wasn't a natural champion for Remain. Jeremy Corbyn, you know, didn't feel like carrying all the water for this. uh, And nor could he have at that point, I think, right? And so you didn't have like a labor, even though the labor constituency would be more inclined to remain in a lot of ways, they weren't going to lead this. David Cameron wasn't a natural leader of that because most of his own party was rebelling against him. And so there was this vacuum. Now, Obama kind of was trying to fill some of that space. That, to me, was the complexity of that. You had people leading the Brexit charge who were completely emotionally invested in that, throwing themselves into it. Sure, Cameron did, but he wasn't a natural to lead that constituency. And so Obama's intervention probably almost seemed even more dramatic than it was because suddenly here's this giant political figure coming in and making these arguments. That that was the, the broader dynamic we were stepping into, which is that 
who is leading this campaign? Like, who is the face of Remain? The other thing is, there's a mirrored challenge in our election, which is that all the arguments for Remain, and frankly, most of the arguments for Hillary Clinton were kind of analytical, rational. Mm. This would be crazy. Don't do this because here are all the bad reasons why. All the emotion was on the other side, yeah. you know, and tapping into pretty powerful feelings of of nostalgia and sovereignty and going back to the way things were. And by the way, things were never as good as <laughs> as those people make them seem. You know, uh, you could feel that in the Brexit campaign and you end up feeling that in our election, too. It's interesting, actually, that you draw that parallel between the Leave campaign and Donald Trump, because in the book, when you talk about how Boris Johnson wrote that op-ed where he referred to the about removing the Winston Churchill bust from the Oval Office and claimed it was because of the part Kenyan president's ancestral dislike of the British Empire, of which Churchill had been such a fervent defender. And in the book, you talk about a conversation you had with Obama where yeah. he referred to Boris Johnson as being like Britain's Donald Trump. I suppose, a more articulate and urbane Donald Trump, but nonetheless. With better yeah. hair. Yeah, with I better hair. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I suppose part of me was struck that at that point, Boris Johnson had just been mayor of London. He wasn't yeah. a sort of yeah. senior figure, but he he was aware yeah, yeah, that he yeah. was aware of the sort of oh, yeah. guy he was up against. Yeah, no, and, and again, I, I make light of the differences, but you know what happened there is that, and that grated on Obama because... He was here in 2011 at Westminster, like proclaiming uh, the the greatness of the Western alliance, and 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 he didn't have hostility to the British Empire because he was black, you know, um, and, and and so it grated on him because it was you know right at the, that line of uh, let's at, at a minimum it was racially tinged to suggest that because he had Kenyan ancestry he must hate the British. What he meant that was more serious about that, because my joke was essentially, oh, they're more subtle back home, you know, in, in their kind of racial uh, dog whistles. And Obama said he's he's their Trump. What he's talking about there is, again, a politics that is based upon reclaiming some lost position. Uh, and, and to speak about Trump, it you know, it's really the position of the white man in American society. You know, there's too much immigration. There's too much change. These elites don't understand us anymore. Uh, frankly, there's, a, there's too many women in the workplace. I mean, the, Trump is an expression of a certain constituency losing power and status, wanting to reclaim it. I think in a, in a somewhat different way, but somewhat similar way, is also you know, Boris Johnson is tapping into a politics of nostalgia, you know, make Britain great again. You know, <laughs> I mean, uh, we don't need Europe. You know, we, we don't need we don't want all these immigrants. You know, we we can take care of our own business. Um, that's actually, you know, while I do think Boris Johnson is a more, again, uh, capable person than Donald Trump, the, that politics of nostalgia, uh, a kind of nationalist view of the world, a rejection of globalization, uh, a desire to just turn back the clock, um, you know, that's Putin's message, that's Trump's message, and that was Boris Johnson's message. And there was a point immediately after the result where it looked like President Obama would have to be might have to pick up the phone and congratulate Prime Minister Johnson. Yes, yeah. I mean, obviously, it didn't it didn't pan out like that. But were you sort of conscious of the fact that this guy, within a couple of weeks, could end up? I was being Prime Minister. I was. I. I and I have to tell you, like Obama, you know that that op-ed really grated on him um, because he felt like he had been a good friend to the UK, um, and so to have this kind of nonsense about Churchill busts and. Kenyan ancestry, you know, really did great on him. I think he would have 
you know, he would have dealt with it fine. He had to sh- smile and shake hands with a lot of Republicans who'd said far worse things. Um, I did think there was something remarkable in watching people like Boris Johnson not become prime minister. It was like a bit like watching after Trump won some of the Republicans, you know, this expression in the U.S., I don't know if it comes over here, of the dog catching the car, you know, that they didn't actually think this would work. Um, <laughs> it, 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 you know, a lot of Republicans like, oh, wow, that he actually won. Um, and you felt that with, with N- Nigel Farage leaving and Boris kind of artfully avoiding becoming prime minister. It's like nobody wanted, none of the Brexiteers seemed to want to actually be responsible for the Brexit. <laughs> um, and so Theresa May, uh, kind of by process of elimination, uh, ends up in this position. I, 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 I always felt like that was kind of a, a telling revelation about their uh, lack of confidence in Brexit going well, that, they, that, that Boris and these, some of these other Brexiteers did not want that job. So what did uh, President Obama make of Theresa May? They, they didn't like, immediately hit it off. Uh, he had a fine working relationship with her. It was awkward. I mean, it was he had campaigned against Brexit and uh, you know, she had this strange role to play of becoming the face of Brexit while joining this club with like Obama and Merkel and and Hollande that that you know, clearly none of whom wanted this to happen. It was a very strange I remember their first meeting it was very kind of unusual. And I knew a bunch of people on the British side because some of them had worked for Cameron. And it just, you could tell that they weren't going to have enough time together to build much of a personal relationship. And you could also tell that her prime ministership was going to be overwhelmingly dominated by this one thing where we had been on the opposite side of the debate. There wasn't the warmth that you'd seen. There wasn't the warmth that I'd seen with Cameron and and with Gordon Brown as well. One of the maybe odder relationships that we saw that played out during the presidency was that between the Obamas and the royal family, and particularly the Queen and and Prince Philip. Did that surprise you? I mean, they're not natural, you know, you're putting people together around a dinner table. You might not necessarily thought they were the ones going to hit it up. But was that a genuine connection? I mean, I'm not just... He loved the Queen. Like, he, I mean, there's really almost nobody he met that he, he was that... Uh, it was a combination of two things. One is the natural thing, which is he, you know, after he'd spent, I mean, I remember we had dinner at Buckingham Palace and he sat next to her and then I stayed behind in his kind of guest quarters. And first of all, he's kind of, you know, marveling at like, I was a state senator in a condo in Chicago four years ago <laughs> and here I am with the Queen of England. You know, and one piece of it is that they've met everybody and seen every, you know, she had a story for everything. But then the other more revealing thing I thought is that Obama said, you know, she reminds me of my grandmother. And, and so Obama was raised by his grandmother, his white grandmother, and who was this kind of tough, pragmatic, plain-spoken, straightforward person. And what he loved about the queen is that you know, she didn't mince words. Like, she had a view, like, she would tell you, short, crisp, and that was it, and let's move on to the next person. She reminded him of, of, of this incredibly important person in his own life, um, stylistically, generationally, and so he felt this this connection with her. He thought Prince Philip was just entertaining. I mean, he <laughs> he thought you know there were very few people that were more entertaining to have lunch with than Prince That's Philip. That's the entire nation basically. Yeah, thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he yeah. loved it though. Obama likes a good character, right? Yeah. And um, so they they had this you know, and they had to sit next to each other at, at all manner of events, you know. And he he really enjoyed that and had some good stories. 
I'll tell you one good story I have, which I didn't even put in the book, but I. We this were, is exclusive. This yes. Is, yes. Very good. It's not that. It, so we're <laughs> in um, we're in Normandy, and it's the height of the Ukraine tensions, and it's a D-Day commemoration, and all the leaders are in this special area where they're having lunch. I had actually been out all night the night before because this was the end of the trip and we were done. I had no work to do that day. I was done. So I was like, I'm a big night in Paris, you know. And and so I'm out in the staff area and someone comes running, Pete Souza, our photographer, and says, he's talking to Putin. Obama's talking to Putin. And this is in the height of, you know, they never spoke. And, and someone had to be there to hear this. So I sprint uh, through this room that I'm not even supposed to be in. I don't know how I didn't get tackled. And I'm only, you know, it's all foreign leaders. And there's Obama talking to Putin. All the leaders are sitting there. They have their iPhones up taking pictures. And so I go over there so I can hear what they're saying. And they're arguing about Ukraine. And uh, I know this is going to be major media events. can overtake everything. But I'm totally exhausted. So then I go and I need to use a restroom. So I find the restroom. And you know when you go to open a door and it doesn't open, you know, and it's kind of, but you can't tell if it's locked. So I push it a few times. And it's like, is it jammed or not? So I'm really like shaking this door hard. And I finally realized like, okay, someone's in there. So I take like two steps back and I'm waiting. And that second door opens and the queen of England walks out. <laughs> and she, she looks at me like, are you the man who was just shaking the door while I was going to the bathroom? And she kind of fixes her handbag and kind of gives me a stern look and then just moves on. And I'm like, Oh God! I hope nobody saw that. Like, um, <laughs> so anyway, that's a bit of a side note. Um, uh, that is that is a terrific story. Yeah, and yeah, the, yeah. the book is all the poor point. Yeah. Uh, going back to the Obama Putin, when they were having that argument, are they having that in English? Are they having it with translators? They're having it with translators. Okay, um, and um, and they're really going at it. And it was it was weird because um, the they're all the world leaders like kind of back a step just watching this, and you you know. That was very much the dynamic for the last three years after Ukraine. Just before we move on, we will talk about Donald Trump because obviously it's sort of the the, the big thing looming yeah. on the horizon. You mentioned Jeremy Corbyn. What was the given that Jeremy Corbyn is ostensibly the leader of the party yeah. aligned with the Democrats? What was the view in the White House of the change that happened? Because he met Ed Miliband, I think, a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. that change that happened, and then people have subsequently drawn parallels with Bernie Sanders and that sort of thing. But yeah. We knew David Miliband very well, frankly. Ed a little less so, but he knew Ed. I think the Sanders parallel is totally accurate. Like a lot of people, when Jeremy Corbyn came in, we thought he was probably not going to, I mean, I'll be honest, like that he was probably not going to last that long as leader, that it was a bit of a, a surprise because of the way in which Labor selects their leaders. You know, they did meet. I remember I was with Obama when he met Corbyn um, on that Brexit trip, actually, Um it, I've actually met a lot with Bernie Sanders and it reminded me of Bernie Sanders, you know, like he has a kind of for good and bad, you know, unreconstructed view of how things should work and what the problems are, you know, that is very much, you know, uh, socialist in orientation, big corporations, you know, distrust of free trade, a lot that Obama could find to agree with and some things Obama could find to disagree with because Obama is a more more of a globalization embracing politician. You know, he found an opening um, with with May and Brexit in that last election. Um, And, you know, it's been interesting to talk. You know, Obama's actually old friends with a parliamentarian, uh, David Lammy here, um, labor guy. Uh, And it's been interesting to talk to David, just get his sense of how much, you know, what was a very controversial labor leadership is now, you know, now (laughs) there's nothing that that propels you like, you know, picking up seats in an election like there's. There is a sense that no, Jeremy Corbyn could be prime minister, you know, which was not. I, I will, I will say, like, was not the. Um, we didn't think that when we met him, 
we thought he was kind of a, a placeholder, albeit, and I say that with some admiration for his, just like I have admiration for Bernie Sanders for you know being principled and and the fact that he's been able to connect with young people through that message, I think, is impressive. And obviously, you know, one thing we've seen in recent years is politics has thrown up unexpected uh, outcomes, probably none more so than Donald Trump. I continue to believe Mr. Trump will not be president. And the reason is because I have a lot of faith in the American people. And I think they recognize that being president is a serious job. It's not hosting a talk show or a reality show. It's not promotion. It's not marketing. It's hard. One of the things that reading the book really comes through is a sense that both you and Barack Obama and those around you thought that that his election twice had in some way changed things. There was a sort of new settled order of of America. It's still extraordinary that America elected a black president. And that had moved things on. And that actually you were really brought up short by the result, not just because your candidate didn't win, but just what what the Donald Trump winning meant. And maybe America wasn't the America that you thought it was. That's absolutely right, particularly of me. You know, one of the things that was interesting to me is that Obama was never as optimistic as as I was. I think because he's an African-American. Um, he's much more aware of structural racism. And um, it was always white people who are the most fervent and wanting to believe that Barack Obama's election was going to change everything. You know, I think what we realized, you know, I quote him after the election saying, you know, maybe maybe I was 10 or 20 years too early. What he really means is that his coalition demographically is actually where America is going, right? Uh, America is going to become a majority-minority country within the next 20 years or so. It's going to be more diverse. It's younger people are more progressive. And the the type of coalition that Trump built, which is a kind of a grievance, basically a white grievance-based coalition, could not win a presidential election in 10 or 20 years. I think I believe that we had already arrived at that moment that someone running with Trump's message could not get elected president. And I describe realizing after the election to my horror in some ways, if you take out the racism, well, I say that take out the racism and the misogyny, um, his message against Hillary was the same that we had used against Hillary in 2008, which is she's a part of a corrupt establishment that can't bring change. There was a kind of shock of recognition that he had captured this outsider mantle and transferred it from our coalition to his demographic coalition. And it did surprise me and it did kind of let me down that that I, I didn't think a, a campaign that was that close to the line in terms of race and sometimes over the line could could elect an actual president, but it could. To what extent did he win that though? Or was it Hillary lost it, not just because of the campaign she ran, but who she was, that she was just the wrong candidate? It's not unlike the Brexit thing where I think you can overread it. I think she didn't have a great campaign. I think Obama, do, do people say, well, you know, this was an inevitable reaction to Obama. I'm like, well, Obama beat Romney in 12 by a huge margin. And that backlash was still there. You know, I, I, I think that with the right candidate, I think if Obama had won against Trump, he would have won by more than he won in 08 and 12. I, I think with the right candidate, you beat Trump. And she was she was the perfect foil for Trump in a way. And I say that with sympathy for her. But because she'd been worn down by kind of 30 years of Republican attacks, he she was an easier person for him to demagogue. Um, so I think you can overlearn. I don't think America changed as much <laughs> as it looks like from Obama to Trump. I think that was kind of a crazy election where everything broke a certain way. And even with that, 
you know, he still lost the popular vote, but had enough wins in states to get get elected. And so how optimistic or pessimistic are you about what this means for America? Because there were some people who think that this is, you know, especially what's going to happen with the Supreme Court, that this is going to set America on a, on a whole new path. Or is it actually a, you know, you'll be there for four years, maybe eight years, and, you know, things change? What? I think I'm, I'm optimistic politically, but pessimistic in a broader sense. And this, what I mean by that is, I do think the Democrats have a very good chance of winning the Congress back in November and probably a better than even chance um, of winning the next presidential election. I think the difficulty, though, is that Trump is so outside the mainstream that I don't know what the presidency is going to look like on the back end of Donald Trump. You know, um, we're so polarized. The, the, the norms have been so eviscerated. The expectations in our political leaders are diminished. I think our standing around the world is diminished. Even though I think the political pendulum will swing back, I think what I'm worried about is like, well, to what? You know, like, like how much is, is this changing the nature of American politics and our role in the world? And just because you know this stuff better than any of us do on this side of the Atlantic, who should we be keeping an eye on for the Democrats? I'd watch the outsiders because if you look at Democrats, you know, we won with Obama, Clinton, Carter kind of outsiders. We lose with Kerry. Um, Hillary Clinton, Al Gore, the insiders. There are people like Deval Patrick, the former governor of Massachusetts, Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, Mitch Landry, the former mayor of New Orleans. Seem like long shots. If somebody from the outside can, can find a message that connects because there's a hunger in the Democratic base for not just another insider. For, for you, know, you see this in you know, the 28-year-old who just won a major congressional election in the United States. Uh, I'm not guaranteeing that those people are going to win, but I think someone from the outside who catches a fire can pose a big threat to whoever the inside person is. Obviously, if Joe Biden runs, he's great, but uh, I, I do think that there'll be that insider-outsider dynamic. Do you think Joe Biden could beat him? You know, I think he could have beat him last time. Yeah. Um, I think it's you know tough because, again, I, I just think the best contrast to draw with Trump is to not put up someone who he can say is a part of the... Yeah. Establishment now. No, I think Joe Biden could beat him if he got through a primary and had a clean shot at him. You know, but that's going to be tough. Well, it's fascinating, and we could talk about this yeah, forever. Yeah. But thank you so much for coming in. The world as it is inside the Obama White House is out now, and you can subscribe to this uh, podcast on iTunes on your Android device, and sign up to my morning uh, award-winning morning email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. My huge thanks to Ben Rhodes, and for thanks. me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 